0: Experienced in these blackouts, blackout stretches of time Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Captain's Log. This is your captain speaking, Jose Valle, Jr., joined by my co-host and first officer, Mason Schrader. Hello, Mason. Long time no talk. How, How are you? I'm good. Did you have a good Valentine's Day, Mason?
1: Yeah, I did. I went up and stayed in Des Moines at a hotel. It was great. Nice. Yeah.
0: Ask me how my Valentine's Day went.
1: How was your Valentine's Day, Jose?
0: I had to give my car payment that day. So good. So it was actually pretty good because, you know, I'm trying to stay financially on top of things. So it was good. I don't even remember what else I did that day. Oh, no, no. I had a movie night that day. So, yeah, it was pretty good. Nice. We watched Inglorious Bastards.
1: Solid movie.
0: Solid movie to watch on Valentine's Day, I say. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Mason, I'm glad that, one, you're good. You had a good Valentine's Day. But I'm also glad that we're back talking about our old pal, your old pal. Your family has direct ties to him, I believe, uh, mm. Ervil LeBaron during the month of love, Mason.
1: Jose, I keep telling you, not all white people are related.
0: I don't... That doesn't sound about right to me.
1: Yeah, all right. That's fair. Yeah. I'm so, going to tell cousin Ben Shapiro <laughs> about you.
0: <laughs> Let's say hypothetically, for the sake of the argument. Um, so, yes, it, it, I think it's very appropriate that we're talking about Irville LeBaron during the month of love, because it's something that he probably never felt in his life. Well, that's not <laughs> true, because I think he felt love for power and money Yeah,
1: probably, (laughs) but I don't think that's the same, and I don't think that's good.
0: No, 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 it's not. Well, today we're back, folks, uh, with part four of Herbal LeBaron and the Church of the Lamb of God, inching ever closer to the conclusion of this bizarre and deadly story. So, Mason, are you ready to dive in to more exploits of of our pal, Irvi?
1: Unfortunately...
0: Well then, slip on your rubber gloves and goggles, oh. because it's about to get bloody.
1: Oh man! Yeah. I'm guessing this episode's sh- gonna be sh- less it's- funny than normal. Um, Maybe not less. Yeah, I mean it's gonna be less. Look, there's light-hearted. Mom-
0: Yes, there's moments for like, haha, but then there's just a lot of like, you're just like, ah, oh. well that's there's unfortunate less- that that happened to that person.
1: Less spaceships being built.
0: Yeah, we've. I think we've left that. That's. Damn. I don't think that's going to come back for a while. From this point Damn. on, it's just people getting killed. And it's Ervil doing stupid shit, so that's kind of funny and light, but then again, it's just people have, you know, their lives being ruined by some psychopath. Cool. Yeah. When we last left off, Ervil and his goon squad had murdered the prophet of the church of the firstborn of the fullness of time and Ervil's own brother, Joel the Baron. Ervil had been set free from prison on a technicality and was ramping up to make his move against the rival church. Before we pick up Mason, though, I want to talk about uh, the pivotal roles that Ervil's wives played in the whole ordeal and just how the prophet viewed the women he sealed himself to. Uh, Because we'll talk about one later, and I think if we talk a little bit about this, it'll provide some perspective and maybe understanding of why she did what she did. Uh, Last time, due to time constraints, we weren't able to get into it um so if you'd indulge me that would be great
1: yeah of course i'll indulge you for anything and you're just like, like, you like no that.
0: you're like no i don't no. want to talk about it i'm like
1: oh i don't want to do this oh. podcast anymore i keep telling you <laughs> I, that okay it full sucks. disclosure
0: for mason and everyone that is my uh-huh. biggest fear then mason one day will just text me and be like yeah actually i don't think i want to do this anymore <laughs> and i'll just it, be like
1: i've been thinking just, about it i'm gonna it i'm gonna sucks. be honest i'm gonna
0: keep it real with you mason I have been, like, contingency. I'm like, okay, who do I call up when Mason's gone? Oh, no God, offense no. to Nick, but I just don't think it would carry on the same with Nick. No. It's a whole different vibe with Max, and That's I just I can't think of anyone.
1: If it makes you feel any better, and you don't have to keep this part in. This is just for you, buddy, because you're my friend and I love you. I Kim was like, how will you recording your podcast with Jose work when I move in? And I'm like, well, I do it in the bedroom, so as long as... If you can just hang out in the living room during that time, it shouldn't be a problem.
0: Uh-huh. Good.
1: So we're we're working it in. It's all good. She bought her T-shirt. So I I mean... Yes. Okay, good. She makes fun of me for it, but it's fine.
0: Good. So Ervil categorized his wives into three categories. The good, the bad, and the unimportant.
1: That's my favorite Clint Eastwood movie.
0: <laughs> Wouldn't put it past him. The good came... The, the
1: unimportant are everybody that's not white.
0: Yeah. Well, that's not true, because he's got a weird thing for, like, taking from other cultures. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah, that's true. He does.
0: The good came, in his older and in Anderson's words, least attractive Anglo wives.
1: Nice. I love when you can mix misogyny and racism together. Yeah, it's pretty fun. Yeah. Yeah.
0: These women were Anna Mae Marston, Rosemary Barlow, Linda Johnson, and Vonda White. Wives number four, seven, eight, and ten respectively. They helped maintain safe houses, move vehicles, provide money and refuge for the soldiers, and Vonda White would even carry out two murders for Ervil. Anna Mae, Rosemary, and Linda would indoctrinate their children into Ervil's holy war, and those children would continue on their father's mission even after his death. The bad consisted of his younger, more attractive Anglo wives, Claston. Joy Marston, Classic. Yeah. Wife number three, who abandoned Ervil months after their marriage. Christina Jensen and Deborah Bateman, wives six and nine, who also bid their time until they too left for the U.S. and filed for divorce. Lorna Shinowitz, five number five, wife number five, <laughs> five number <laughs> five, who would prove to be a pain in Ervil's life, leaving several times and forcing him to beg for her return. She was like the only one that kept Deb on his fucking toes. Like she would leave, and he'd be like, "Babe, please, please mm. come back, baby. Come on, baby, please." And she'd be like, "I don't know, what's in it? Like, what if I come back? Like, what are you gonna do?"
1: Interesting. So
0: I like that about her. And then finally, Rena Chinoweth, who would directly contribute to his blood atonement campaign, committing a murder for him. But at the end, she too was a disappointment to Ervil.
1: So, are these are the ones that share the last names? They're are usually they sisters. Family. I believe
0: yeah, okay. Lorna and. Rina were family, sisters. Right. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and then like, uh, what was the Marston? The two and anime and so Joy Joy.
0: was the sister-in-law of anime. Remember, anime is the girl, is the wife that he took from the other guy. Right. Who like the the one person was like I caught them kissing in their room, and we were like, what was what were they doing in the room?
1: (laughs) Right. Okay. Yeah. 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 Yeah.
0: The unimportant were the four Mexican women Ervil had married. Mm-hmm. Delfina Salido, Maria de la Luz Vega, and Teresa and Yolanda Rios. Because again, Ervil was a raging racist. Yeah. If you look Ervil the Baron up, one of the first things that comes up is the white supremacist Morm- Mormon Manson. Great title for him, because that's exactly what it was. Yeah, we we haven't touched right. on it a lot um, in this series, but also I would say it's there. If you read the book, it's just called something else like he refers to mexicans and people of color as gentiles or, or sorry Lamanites. Mm. but it's just uh, okay, him being yeah. like i'm a racist and they're less it's than
1: me that i mean he seems it's that thing where it seems like racism is the given yeah you know what i mean like he's such a bad person that it's like well yeah obviously he's racist what else you know what i mean honestly
0: yes that's the thing yeah anyway these were wives one two eleven and twelve and they were merely servants for Ervil. They took care of his children, took care of his other wife's children, cooked, cleaned, that sort of stuff. Yet, despite the treatment of their mothers, many of the children these women would, many of the children of these women would carry on their father's ministry and remain with the cult into adulthood. With that out of the way, let's jump back into the story. After Joel's murder, Irville had lost any support he might have had in Cologne and Le Baron as people there had moved to the colony as a result of Joel's teachings and were loyal to the firstborn prophet. Therefore, the man who had orchestrated his death was enemy number one. But in Los Molinos, things weren't so cut and dry. A lot of the people living in the small town were Mexican campesinos, small-time farmers who had gone to the area in search of economic opportunities rather than religious callings. They were possibly swayed by Ervil's talk of luxury resorts and marinas, of the prospect of jobs and a thriving tourist economy that could bring the area financial stability and wealth distribution. Ervil also chose Los Molinos as new recruitment ground because although ejido status had been approved for the area, it had still not been passed. It was languishing in the Mexican bureaucratic process therefore if ervil could win in his mind if he could win over the people of los molinos he could gain control of the area before it went into effect and he could shut the whole thing down if the people don't want it the government won't approve it is what he thought ervil thus had his people in los molinos begin to spy on important firstborners living in the area having them learn their movements and habits during the first half of 1974 Ervil spent his time between various safe homes in the American Southwest. These safe houses were simply cheap motel rooms and back bedrooms in his followers' homes, as he had grown paranoid of imaginary assassins dispatched by the firstborn church. During this time, Ervil would release his next manifesto, Hour of Crisis, Day of Vengeance, which is the sequel to Batman v. Superman, Dawn Mm. of Justice. Yep. So, in this new manifesto, Ervil claimed the beginning of the end of times was upon them. Classic cold shit. Which had been sparked by the epic struggle between him and Joel. He claimed that phase two, because we're in the MCU or something, was now upon them. A final call to God's people. To turn from their false churches and join Ervil, or suffer pain and destruction. Fire and brimstone. Those who refused his invitation would be burned to ashes, and those who joined him, the Son of Righteousness, would walk upon the ashes of the sinners and deniers. Pretty hard. It's pretty hardcore, man. I in not to you.
1: Look, he's, you know, you want to give him credit for one thing or another, he knows how to run a cult.
0: Yeah. Again, we talked about this last time, where he's, like, weirdly plugged in into, like, the... We who now live in the future and we look at these cults in the past, we're like, "Oh, this is what you do for a cult." Bum 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 bum. Irvin right. was living in that time and somehow knew, like, "Oh yeah, this is what I gotta do." Bum 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 bum.
1: Yeah, Just he's fucking. really good at being a cult yeah. leader.
0: He was in the pro leagues for sure.
1: Oh yeah, he yeah. was the he was the Michael Jordan. Well, he was the he was the he the was Clyde Drexler. There you go. Yeah, of of it of cult leading, where yeah. you know, underrated. He should have gotten you know, Clyde the yeah. Glide. He should have gotten more more. Uh, what do you think of Carl
0: Malone, Mason? There's well, some recent controversy. Well, he a teenager. So. <laughs> yeah, you know, some recent controversy. As someone who grew up in Utah, Carl Malone's name is plastered everywhere because he owns a bunch uh-huh. of dealerships. Yeah, um, and I never really knew who he was until I grew up, grew up, and then heard about that, and I was like, that's horrible. And then I guess he judged the. One of the contests at the All-Star game? Is that right?
1: I'm sure he probably did.
0: It's kind of crazy. That guy got a 13-year-old pregnant and then denied it Mm. for 30 years until he finally told the guy, yeah, we can have a relationship. His son, though, went on to play in the NFL.
1: Yep. It's
0: not good. Anyway, while many firstborners lobbied law enforcement agencies both in the U.S. and Mexico to do something about Ervil's never-ending threats, Officials said there was nothing they could do, since Ervil wasn't making specific threats towards one person or group, which is fair but also disappointing. It's like you want the law to be fair and work, but then also sometimes you're like, it's okay. Just do a little bit of brutality.
1: It's, mm, yeah, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. Ervil was disappointed that his latest manifesto had not turned many hearts or wallets to his church. He really was like, why aren't the phones ringing?
1: I don't understand. I'm telling people that they'll die if they don't. I join put my me. whole
0: Ervil Laberunsi into that shit.
1: Labusi. <laughs> yeah.
0: Labussy Ah, Le-busy. It was right there yeah. too. Mm-hmm. More insulting. None of the churches he had sent copies to had even bothered to respond to his threats, because he like <laughs> sent personal copies, being like, "This is," and they they were well, like, oh, "Yeah, because cool. they're
1: just like they're sick of him.
0: He's been like pestering them yeah. for years. Right. They don't." even like care about him. To add salt on his wound, the Mexican government finally finalized ejido status for Los Molinos and thus squashed Ervil's hopes for seizing the land. As Ervil's threats continued and his law enforcement repeated to firstborners their inability to act, the Church of the Firstborn prepared for what they believed was an imminent attack. In colonial Le Barren, The men armed themselves and took turns as sentries along the perimeter of the town. One resident even installed a siren on his roof, to be activated at the first sign of Ervil and his cronies. Ervil and Dan bragged to a friend in Salt Lake City that by the new year, there wouldn't be any men left alive in Colonial Lebaron. This somehow made its way to Verlin, who called a firstborner in Baja California and urged them to warn Los Molinos, since they had no telephones in the small town, God, can you imagine that? It'd it's stuff, man. Nuts. No Clash yeah. of Clans, couldn't do it.
1: I don't. I'm play. really in a
0: Clash of Clans now, guys. It's my whole life now. Cool. Yeah.
1: This episode is brought, brought to sponsored you by, by Clash of Clans. Clash of Clans. <laughs> yeah, get a skeleton riding a pig or some shit. I don't know. No,
0: it's Mr. T riding a pig. It's called right. riders.
1: <laughs> Moving on.
0: But rather than make the trip down, the member opted to write a letter for Joel Castro, the bishop of Los Molinos, who received the letter four days later. So this guy was like, I could drive for like three hours. A lot of driving. Or Mm -hmm. just send a letter. It's true. In the fall of 1974, Ervil's followers had been schooled in the art of war by newest convert, Dean Vest It's a fake name That's a fake name It's not a real person
1: Oh you mean Dean Vest Isn't a real name Dean Vest I like
0: to imagine I also imagine him Throughout this entire story Wearing a vest
1: Oh yeah And he's like
0: Name's Dean Vest And he's just got a vest My name's
1: Dean Vest That's a comic book character you like a piece of gum And then he pulls out A piece of gum From one of his Mm -hmm. Vest pockets Yeah
0: Vest was a Vietnam vet With a metal plate In his head (laughs) It's not funny. I don't know why I laughed. <laughs> it just no, happened. No,
1: kind of, it's, it's kind of funny. It's kind of funny.
0: <laughs> he showed the Lamb of God how to operate firearms and manufacture fire bombs. That's scary. Cause Let me it's be like, clear.
1: It's not funny that he just has a metal plate in his head. It's funny that he's become uh, this... A Spider-Man uh, villain. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's exactly what it is.
0: Anyway, yeah. So, like, it's one thing for, like, a cult to, like... The Mansons, right? They killed with, like, a gun and um, knives. These guys are, sure. like, full-on becoming guerrillas. They're a militia. Yeah, yeah like a, a militia. militia. It's insane. Yeah. After this education, Ervil chose Don Sullivan, Eddie Marston, Mark and Duane Chinoweth, and their sister, Rena, Ervil's soon-to-be wife, to carry out the Lord's plan of reckoning in Los Molinos. God's plan was that the hit squad would venture into Los Molinos during daylight making themselves known and then abruptly leave, giving the indication to firstborners that there was no more danger, causing them to lower their guard. Then the hit squad would return at nightfall and strike. Strike fast, strike hard, no mercy.
1: Uh, all right. I... It's Cobra Kai. No, I know, but I just don't understand that, like, it seems like it would be just as effective to...
0: Just show up at night? Yeah. Yeah. No, but they wanted to be they they literally they were like, we'll go in and be like Hey It's us Look the Lamb of us. God. How kay. is everyone? Okay, well in. we're gonna leave for good. We're gonna get out of here. And um we'll see you guys. And then they like run and then run behind a bush. And right. Just wait.
1: They, yeah, they do the the Okay, I think they bought it. They don't
0: know we're here anymore guys, we can see you you're, They don't
1: know they have no idea
0: you you're just hiding behind a tree. it's not even load, a big enough tree
1: load the rifles
0: hey these guys have guns can we do, should we do something
1: put keep putting them keep loading the the rifles
0: also yeah, this all feels like a Looney Tunes cartoon
1: yeah, it's sad that actually I'm guessing people die from this
0: yes, that's a sad part. Ervil's primary target in this mission was his brother Verlin, whom he hated because he had taken his position as patriarch, and then he was made the head of the firstborn church. And he had also been told that Verlin was in Los Molinos. Ervil didn't care how many people might be caught in the crosshairs. He just wanted Verlin gone. So once nightfall came, the hit squad would return and burn down the largest home in the small town. This would draw out Verlin, and thus they would kill him. This, according to God, was to take place on December 26th, 1974.
1: Do you know me? Would you believe I'm Bugs Bunny? I'm also the voice of many other cartoon characters. But in here, they don't care if I'm Elmer Fudd. So I carry an American Express card, the one card I need for travel and entertaining, for business and pleasure. Why, well, without this, the only way I'd get any attention is by saying, yeah, That's all, folks. <laughs>
0: That day, 16-year-old Rena Chinoweth arrived from the United States in a green Fiat sedan. Fiat. We're a car. With her was Jorge LeBaron, Ervil's son, who was 19 years old, and two of his younger brothers, Isaac, 11, and Craig, 9. They took boxes out of the Chinoweth home uh, out to the car, given the implication that they were going away. Maria de la Luz Vega, Ervil's second wife, also did the same, leaving the colony. A little after four o'clock, a second vehicle carrying Ervil supporters arrived from the U.S. The rusty GMC truck carried Mark and Duane Chinoweth, Don Sullivan, and Eddie Marston. For the next half hour, the men drove through the town, saying no words to anyone, and then they met up with Rena out by the dunes outside the town. By five thirty, both cars had left the colony and headed north, and the people of Los Molinos breathed a sigh of relief. The coming think, blood Sorry, I ahead.
1: think I'm most mad at how at the fact that this plan actually worked.
0: Yeah, same. And then I'm also most mad about what's gonna happen next. So
1: Well okay, that's a good point. Let me tell you. Sorry, what. I'm most upset about anyway, yeah. go ahead. Yeah.
0: The coming bloodshed could have been avoided by Castro, who was the Bishop of Los Molinos had he only read the letter that had arrived that morning, warning of a potential attack. But due to perhaps laziness, he didn't get around to it until late that evening. And even then, since it only mentioned Colonial Le Baron, he thought nothing of it, and decided to put the issue off until the next morning. He was literally like, ah, this is tomorrow. This is tomorrow Castro's problem. So Today he Castro's going to chill he- out.
1: He read the letter and it said Ervil LeBaron's going to attack? Well,
0: because remember him and Ervil and um, Dan had mentioned to a friend that there would be no men left alive in Colonial LeBaron. And so that was forwarded by Verlin to this follower in in Baja, California, who then wrote to Castro being like, Hey, this is the threat they made. Um, Verlin's Verlin's recommending that, that we keep a guard up. And but I
1: thought Verlin was in the town.
0: He's not in Los Molinos.
1: Oh, but but Ervil, Ervil thinks he thought is?
0: he was. Yeah.
1: Okay. Yeah. Okay. That. Okay. So. Got and this
0: guy. This guy read the letter, which you know said Ervil has threatened Colonial Baron. Verlin uh-huh. thinks we should be on guard. And went. Ah, he threatened Colonial Baron. He didn't threaten Los Molinos. We'll talk about it in the morning. See what we do.
1: Mm. Yeah. Okay.
0: That night. Ervil's people struck at around nine o'clock. Duane Chinoweth turned off the highway and dr- started down the dirt path to Los Molinos. In the truck were rifles, shotguns, and semi-automatic pistols. Behind him were Rena and Ervil's three sons with several dozen Molotov cocktails. Rena pulled over on a hill overlooking Los Molinos and let out the younger boys, promising they would have a better view there of the coming fireworks. Hey, at least she didn't bring the kids into this.
1: No. (laughs) Yeah, except for, but she did because they're watching a town get uh, raided as if it was, yeah.
0: The fucking, yeah. It's
1: going good. Things are great.
0: Her and Jorge continued on. They continued on. At 920, they firebombed the tower house, which belonged to Virginia Lopez. They then waited in the dark for Verlin to show himself. But when he did not appear, they simply began to open fire on the firstborners who had come out to put out the fire. Manases Mendez, a 16-year-old who had moved to Los Molinos with his aunt and uncle a month earlier, had climbed to the third floor landing of the tower uh, home after the flames had been extinguished. As others began to climb the home, the assassins became nervous of the possibility of being spotted. So one of the attackers raised his rifle and fired at Manassas, who fell from the third floor and crashed to the ground before the crowd. Blood was pouring from the boy's shattered leg, and as the boy clutched his knees, he cried out for his aunt. In the darkness, the crowd was confused and panicked. A dozen or so firstborners lay crumpled on the ground in front of the home. Manassas could still be heard crying out as the Lamb of God moved forward among the wounded. Mark Chinoweth noticed the young boy and moved over to him. The 22 year olds stood over this boy for a moment, listened to his pleas before pointing a shotgun at his chest and firing.
1: Okay, so now's a good time as any to mention that... These cult leaders, they're dumb, stupid sacks of shit. Yes. They have... But when they have real world consequences, I don't know. This is why we, I think this is why we talk about, this is why I like to talk about yes, this. exactly. Because it's important to remember that these are feckless fucking cowards mm-hmm. who use manipulation on a large scale in order to hurt. Uh, an innumerable amount of innocent people mm-hmm. and manipulate others who wouldn't yes. otherwise have done this shit.
0: Part of the reason why I wanted to cover this story was because after I learned of what Le Baron did exactly, I thought it was so interesting that people understand why. And that's why it's been such a long series because I really want to present all the evidence so that people, I think it's so easy to dismiss it with being like, oh, well he was crazy and the people that followed him were crazy Yes, but also there's so much more to it. And also, by doing something so in this long form that we're doing, I think people can really understand how horrible it was the things that they committed. Because again, with true crime, we often think, oh, that was in the past and that sucked. But like, it still happens today. They just call it something else.
1: We're seeing this become more dangerous almost in the sense that we're no longer looking at it in whoever someone like Ervil LeBaron can get their fingers in personally, we're seeing it. People can reach each other now across the globe. Yeah, can effectively start these online cults that can push people into doing really fucking shitty and terrible things. Yeah, it's 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 important to understand in today's age media literacy, mm-hmm. understanding when uh manipulation and just toxic be- behavior is taking place uh, yeah. but it, it, it's so easy to say i found my group of people and mm. uh, it being uh, you know suddenly you're a nazi basically yeah i was
0: going to say like what do they call what do they call themselves the proud boys or whatever it's like yes. that kind of stuff you know yes um yeah really well put mason
1: as a as a disaffected white man it's easy to see why you can be sucked into this group of people that say women are shitty and terrible because they don't like you and it's other races that are mm-hmm, taking to
0: blame them. yeah
1: and you need to realize that it's not it's that's one single person person pushing an agenda for a Persian, really... that's a different story. No, well, <laughs> I, I'm a proud boy. I don't know if I've made that clear. It's one Persian man's. <laughs> no, but for real, it's very yes. easy for you to find yourself in a like-minded uh, group of people that hate outwardly. Don't do that. Right. A general good rule of thumb is if the people you're, see, you're, you're um, befriending and finding common ground with or doing that over hatred of any other type of person, it's probably a bad thing.
0: Yes. Yeah, well said.
1: And you can trust me on that, I'm a white man.
0: Yeah. (laughs) After this, they began to go house to house and began their firebombing campaign, shooting anyone they encountered. Edmundo Aguilera had slept through the beginning of the attack on his home, only waking up when a Molotov cocktail crashed through his window and set his bed ablaze. The 24-year-old jumped up, looked out his window to see what was going on, and the Lamb of God shot him in the head. The Lamb of God had not found their target, perhaps because Verlin was not even in Los Molinos, but instead 2,000 miles away in Nicaragua, proselytizing. Remarkably, none of the firstborners fought back. Raul Perez would recall,
1: Nobody used their weapons in this town. We were told don't use your weapons because God will put everything in order. There's so it's it's complicated.
0: It is complicated. I'll tell you that right now. I'll tell you that for free.
1: Yeah. <sighs> okay. I have. I don't. I don't even honestly know if I'm able to dissect that because, like, also on one hand, I've
0: heard this at tha- growing up. G- yeah. Catholic. I've heard uh-huh. this a thousand times. Yeah. But also in my family, we always said, um. God will help you if you help yourself. Sure. Um, Which to us was like, don't just, because, you know, in Christianity they tell you like, uh, what is it? Put God first and God will provide. But the way I was raised, it was like, yeah, sure, but like you've got to do something too.
1: I just think, I think even taking God out of the equation and saying that like, you shouldn't, you shouldn't just get your gun out and start shooting. Mm Mm-hmm. But at a certain point, you should.
0: Yeah, when people are coming to your fucking houses and killing your neighbors, I think that's the time to stop being a pacifist.
1: Maybe yeah. fight back. But also, don't be too reactive. It's fucking hard. It's yeah, hard. it is hard. And if you're a good person, your natural inclination is probably going to be not to kill somebody. Yeah, not me. What's up?
0: I'm the Joker. Did, you, did I tell you that? Could
1: you, I'm going to ask if you could maybe stay off the internet for a while.
0: Oh, okay. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> By 10, the raid on Los Molinos had ended, and the group was headed north. They threw boards with nails on them onto the road behind them to stop anyone from pursuing, and it actually worked. One resident went after them, only to have all four of his tires popped. The group stopped 10 miles north of the village and buried their weapons before splitting up. In the end... Two would be killed and dozens more injured as a result of the attack. Mexican authorities were dispatched to protect firstborners in Los Molinos and Colonia Le Baron, and talk of investigation into how Ervil's sentence for Joel's murder was overturned had also began. American law enforcement also began to show interest in Ervil's crusade. Rina Chinoweth was stopped at the Tijuana border, but since the attack had occurred in Mexico and the government had not issued any warrants, she was released.
1: Can I ask you, Jose, and I don't know if you know the answer to yeah. this, but why is it that the firstborners are taking this uh, justice into their own hands as opposed to working with Mexican authorities?
0: Man. I can tell you. <laughs>
1: Okay, and that's fine. And that was me asking you not only as the in, narrator in, and main researcher of the story, oh, but yeah. as someone who's more much more familiar with well, the so Mexican their whole, government. Is me.
0: Their whole holdup, the Mexican government, was like, we the the reason they hadn't gone against Irvol was like, he was tried, and then the and uh-huh. and he was released on a technicality. So we can't go and arrest right. him because because he was released. You know, like, right. And then also, I know that part of the reason that they didn't just stop him beforehand was because they were like, well, technically he hasn't outright threatened you guys. And we don't have any direct evidence linking him to the murder of Joel, even though he was Uh being tried as, or he was convicted as being, um, the intellectual author. But I think his attorneys got him off on being like, well, the chart, some, some weird technicality that kind of just overturned the whole thing. So as far as like government was concerned, Ervil hadn't done anything. Okay. And to be fair, at this point, it seems like the Mexican government finally was like, okay, well, maybe we should like be on the lookout for these guys. And they sent people to protect the towns. And then from this point forward, we see that the church doesn't return to Mexico, the Church of the Lamb of God, because at this point, Mexican authorities were like, the minute that they come back, we're arresting them.
1: Okay, so in your in your estimation, then from my guess, did they do a good job? No. Did they do okay? No. Okay.
0: I don't think they did a good job
1: at all. Um, okay.
0: Yeah, but also Mexican's government has been broken, and uh, during this time, it was the the height of the uh, conservative party in Mexico, and sure. um, a lot of atrocities occurred uh, while they were in power. Underneath the
1: conservative uh, party.
0: Yeah, everybody looked up the riot, what is it called, the riots of 63 in which the Mexican government, with their own version of a secret police, gunned down uh, student organizers who were protesting the Olympics and then tried to cover it all up. We didn't find out about it until the early 2000s when Vicente Fox was like, hey, so I just read these documents that said that the government killed its own people and tried to cover it up. That's fucked up. And then we all were like, oh wait, that happened? Pretty cool stuff.
1: I don't know if that makes me feel better, that it's not just my, the government that I've grown up under. Yeah. <laughs> or if it makes me feel worse that it's everywhere in this world. But, you know.
0: In January of 1975, Los Molinos residents were invited to testify before an Ensenada judge. As witnesses assembled outside the courthouse, Raul Rios approached the crowd with a shotgun in his hand and attempted to open fire on the crowd, but tripped and fired at their feet. His second shot jammed, and he ran. It gets, it gets better. So then, firstborners went after him, and as he was running, he pulled, he produced a pistol, turned around and aimed at them, but didn't see the telephone pole that he ran into and smacked his arm so hard that it knocked his pistol out of his hand.
1: I'm sorry. What fucking cartoon assassination attempt? attempt it's did literally you just, oh, it's just to like me. Bugs Bunny fuck?
0: right now. You know.
1: Like again, it's like it's so fucked up that he tried to do a mass killing. Yeah, exactly. The way he failed at it. Well, is and it's so really funny because comical.
0: Anderson says that like Raúl Rios had really wanted to be on the hit squad, uh-huh. but Ervil had left him off. And then after he, Anderson tells this this story. He goes, "It's it's like he says, um, like I think it's pretty evident why he was left out of the hit squad." <laughs> Yeah. Um, so firstborners went after him. They caught him and what,
1: what this is this fucking Elmer Fudd, dude. <laughs> just like the biggest fuck up of all time.
0: Yeah, he was he was oh, given man. five months in jail afterwards.
1: Five months? Yeah, that seems, seems low. incredibly light. But yeah. all right,
0: the cult was at <laughs> this...
1: The judge was just like, he's too fucking. Stupid. He's
0: too stupid. He said,
1: yeah, imagine him even try. Even if he tried again, he won't succeed. <laughs> no. He's too dumb.
0: The cult was at this point being financed by Victor Chinoweth, the second oldest son of Bud and Thelma Chinoweth, who was a successful Ogden businessman. In turn, Ervil would move church headquarters to Ogden, Utah, and give Victor one of his daughters for marriage. The U.S. was now set to be the battlefield in Ervil's mission to rally the chosen people to his rule. It was also here that he would select four new targets. But before this, the cult would take Another life.
1: Heavenly Father, we ask that we might be instruments in thy hand to fix what we find broken. In the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. In January
0: 1975, two of Irvell's wives, Vonda White and Yolanda Rios, left Ensenada for the San Pedro Mountains. With them was Noemi Sarate, the wife of Bud Chinoweth. After sunset, Vonda stopped the car and ordered Noemi out. She asked her to step behind the vehicle, and she then raised a thirty-eight revolver and fired, killing Noemi. With Yolanda's help, Vonda stashed the body in the trunk of the car and drove down a ways until coming on a hill. Here, they buried her in a shallow grave. When Ervil received the news, he was glad, saying,
1: You don't know how pleased the Lord is that that traitor is dead.
0: This killing was a strange one, however. Noemi had left her Mexican husband and married Bud after Joel and Ervil's falling out at the suggestion of her family, who were loyal followers of Ervil's. Despite leaving the man she loved, she was apparently loving and kind to Bud and bore him two sons. But according to some, by 1975... She had a personality change, with Rena Chinowith claiming that she went crazy and began to threaten to go to the authorities with what she knew about the group, and that word of this had gotten back to Ervil, who had ordered her to be silenced. But this claim doesn't sit right with Anderson, who postulates that it wasn't Ervil who ordered the killing, but rather Thelma Chinowith, Bud's first wife. This is spurred on by a comment made by Rena Chinowith in 1970, where she wrote that her mother treated Noemi's children like if they were her own and later on they would be. And as Noemi's children grew up after being taken in by Thelma, they regarded her as their mother. Sadly, no one spent a day in prison for the killing of Noemi and she is often a forgotten victim of the LeBaron saga. Her body has not been found. It still sits out there somewhere in the San Pedro Mountains in a shallow grave.
1: Isn't it fun when white supremacy still comes into yeah, well, effect? Yeah, well, that was, the,
0: yeah, this is uh, just another, you know what they say, uh, what's that saying? I think you had mentioned it previously, where it's like, the wider you are, the more dead you are.
1: Uh, the less dead theory, the less yeah, dead, yeah, where, like, specifically sex workers of color are less investigated for their murders than, mm-hmm. you know, uh, white women in general and yeah, but yeah, the whiter you are, yes, the the more dead you are. The more you're well, and I think it was it was in.
0: on on full display when um, Gabby Petito went missing, and yes. uh, every, law enforcement everywhere dropped everything to search yep. for her. And yes. in their search, they discovered like a dozen or so bodies of Native American women who had also been killed in the area. And everybody was like, well, "Why didn't you find them before?" And it's like, "Well, because they didn't care before." It wasn't until...
1: Well, because there was no white woman missing. Until this, yeah.
0: Horrible stuff, man. Ervil had, uh, at this time, begun to look at other Mormon fundamentalist groups for the possibilities of allegiance and rivalry. One such rival was Bob Simons, a man who, after suffering a mental breakdown, began to believe he was the one mighty and strong, and that his mission was to recruit the true chosen people of God the Native Americans, to follow him. He didn't achieve this and instead took up residence on a 65 acre ranch near Grantsville, Utah, where he received a flyer for the Church of the Lamb of God. The flyer piqued his interest and he wrote to the group with questions. Weeks later, Dan Jordan and Irv LeBaron showed up at his doorstep, disguised as Al Perry and Ellery Steelson. What a stupid name. Ellery Perry? Stielson. Perry?
1: <laughs> Perry LeBaron?
0: A cult leader? Irvil, <laughs> the cult <cold> leader. Ah, <laughs> uh, uh, Some fun
1: levity before whatever fucked up shit we're about yep. to get into, I'm sure.
0: Over the next couple of months, the two and others from the church would try to convince Simons to join them, all to no avail. Can you imagine, like, you get a flyer for something. and You're like, oh, I'm kind of interested in this. So you reach out to the group thinking, like, they'll respond. And they just fucking show up at your door and they're like, hey... <laughs>
1: What's up? Hey, what's up? I heard you were interested. You're like, whoa. That is jarring because I would be like, that's like when, and this is a true story, that's like when I reached out about interest in Bernie Sanders' local uh-huh. support thing, and then I got like way too many phone calls and I was like, I, enough. I was just trying to be helpful. Yeah. You're making this to the point oh, that I, I remember, do.
0: This happened to me. I went into Smokey Row, I think. Yeah. Were we together? Maybe we weren't, but I remember giving my number to know. them, and then I was getting like, I did the same daily shit Daily shit, and it was like we're organizing yes. a meeting. Could you organize a meeting for Bernie supporters in your area? And I was like, guys, I have to go to class. Like, <laughs>
1: yeah, I, it was like guys, I'm trying this. to be like a little helpful. Like I'm trying to do what I can. You're asking they were like way asking way much me, me to like
0: host people. Like yes. oh, we've got six. And, like, and I'm like no.
1: Constantly be going door to door and shit. It's like dude, I'm a college student. I'm just like yeah, I yeah. get like that's what I could be doing, but like it's either you're in or you're not and yeah. it was like that's insane.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Ervils and Simons would constantly try to spiritually outflex one another. At one point even rolling on the floor and speaking in tongues. Finally, when Ervil, which is just such a two-grown man, being like,
1: mm-hmm. little. <laughs>
0: Yeah,
1: I mean, honestly, it's pretty.
0: That's the craziest we've ever looked, right there. Um, finally, when Ervil told Simon's wife Linda that his prophet found her quite attractive and wished to marry her, Simon's realized that Ellery and Ervil were the same person, and told Ervil he challenged his power. All of this was because all of this all happened. Because Ervil wanted Simon's ranch and his wealth for the church. Sure. He was like, this that guy's got a cool setup. We could be living here. But I yeah, um, also sense. like to imagine that when Ervil showed up as Ellery, he had like a big fake mustache. And, mm-hmm. <laughs> and they had given him like pamphlets with Ervil's regular face. And one yes. day like after, after he hears about this incident, Bob is like looking at the two pictures and he's like, wait a minute. Hold on a damn second. And he, like, draws a mustache on Ervil, yes, and he's like, yes,
1: yeah. oh,
0: oh, my God.
1: Ervil is Ellery, and everybody's like, yeah, yeah, we know. No, yeah,
0: we, we, we could tell from the minute he walked in. When he said, hi, I'm Ervil Ellery." <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: In February of 1975, Ervil married... 16-year-old Rena Chinoweth the girl he had been molesting since she was 12 years old okay (sighs) due to the impoverished state of the cult the marriage took place in a cheap motel in Yuma Arizona I'm sorry but Yuma Arizona is the romantic capital of the southwest what is everybody talking about I'm just trying to move past the fact that this man molested a girl since she was 12
1: yep it'd be much better it'd be a much funnier thing if it wasn't a molestation (laughs) thing
0: with the couple having a wedding dinner of onion rings from Jack in the Box.
1: Oh, God.
0: So sad. It's all so sad, Mason. To
1: be fair, that is a 16-year-old's favorite meal.
0: If, if I got married at 16, I'd be like, hell yeah. yeah. Yeah, same. According to Rena, the disappointment extended to their wedding night. As she recalls,
1: Somehow, I had miraculously managed to hang on to my virginity until the wedding night. I continued to hang on to it through my wedding night and for a while after that. Ervil LeBaron, the notorious womanizer, as the media call them, wasn't up to snuff when it came to consummating his four-year quest. He couldn't get it up that night. Oh, but he tried, though. He tried and tried, but just couldn't get it going. Nothing happened.
0: I do love, look. E.D. is not a thing to joke about.
1: Unless you're a pedophile, racist It it is kind of funny that
0: he also suffered from E.D. apparently.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, 100%.
0: Shortly after, the couple took a road trip that ended in Mountain Green, Utah, where Ervil received a letter from Verlin asking for peace between the two churches. This served only to enrage Ervil more. He felt that Verlin was making it seem that Ervil was responsible for the murder and mayhem that had befallen the first borners which which he was you know
1: what do you mean like he was responsible for the murders that he that he or like, like ordered yeah
0: yeah Ervil and dan spent the next weeks in the mountain green home writing their response which was titled response to an act of war which interpreted the peace offering from verlin as an act of war you know like the title implies it was sent out in April to all of Ervil's enemies. On Rulin Alred's copy, Ervil wrote a personal note.
1: Rulon C. Alred, repent and live the constitution of political kingdom of God, lest the sword of the Lord fall upon you. Then how hardly shall you escape the wrath and indignation of an almighty God. The day is at hand. Repent ye therefore or suffer destruction at the hand of God. There shall be left neither root nor branch. Repent immediately.
0: I, just, I, I like how he thinks he sounds smart.
1: Yeah. But it's a 100%. All just,
0: you know, he's like, damn, that shit is fire.
1: Yeah. Like, he's you know, he's like, yeah. he's
0: showing it to Dan Jordan, and Dan's like, <laughs> I would be worried if I got that, Ervil.
1: Dude, that sounds like it's a straight out of the Bible. <laughs> and it's like you're just He's just like, because you say ye doesn't yeah. mean it sounds like Dan's it's from like, the Bible.
0: Dude, that sounds like a Drake lyric. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you're a certified Jesus boy. <laughs> yeah.
0: Oh God, I can't wait for Christian TikTok to to, to, to do that. Certified Christian boy. Certified Jesus Boy. Irvil, what
1: was the what was his friend's name? Who was he working with?
0: Twenty one. Twenty Savage? Can
1: you do something for me? Dan you talk to me. Can you, you rule some- next for me? Dan.
0: Can you do something for me? Dan Dan yeah. Dan <laughs> Yeah. Instead of like 21, 21. Dan, 21. Dan 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 Twenty one. Uh It's a knife. It's a- <laughs> nice. Ervil. Then came up with a series of ideas to take out his brother Verlin, and these are straight out of fucking Looney Tunes. Listen to this shit.
1: I wait, hold on. Can I make a few? Sure, yeah. Um, <laughs> we put a, we put a, we put a roast chicken dinner.
0: Okay. Okay. In
1: the middle of the road, right? That says free meal. And above that we put an anvil tied to a rope. And when he steps up to eat the food, we <laughs> drop the anvil on his head. That's a good Or, one. or, or, we paint, we paint a tunnel on the side of a wall. So he runs into it really fast.
0: Ervil, when I became your second in command, yeah. I, I promised to tell you things straight as they yes, are
1: yes you did
0: those might be the two most absolute uh-huh. yep. best ideas i've ever heard in my life
1: <laughs> i know right i Not was ever.
0: just i where, was where just did, i fell how asleep how did you come up with
1: those well let me tell you i fell asleep during an episode of uh road Runner, okay. and god just sent them into my brain whoa yeah
0: i'm gonna give you all my money Ervil.
1: <laughs> thank you Hey, let me fuck your wife, sister, and mother, too.
0: Sure, sure. sure.
1: Yeah. Awesome.
0: They all did. It's so crazy how often he was like, Nah, actually, I think I want your wife. And they were like, alright. Well, you're the son of God, so... <laughs> so, these are the actual ones. And they're not too far off from what Mason said. His first one was outfitting a car to look like a Mexican police car with a lamb of God behind the wheel who would wait for Verlin to pass by and then pull him over and atone him. Uh huh. But in this plan the 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 uh driver would just have to wait as long as it took <laughs> for like <laughs> Verlin to decide to go on a trip.
1: It sounds like something Wily e. Coyote would do. Mm-hmm.
0: Another, and this one is crazy, called for the purchasing of a farm in Wisconsin where <laughs> cult members would purchase manure from local farmers, and create methane-based explosives, which would then be carried by a truck to be concealed under the floorboards of a firstborn church in California. And when Verlin arrived to give a prayer service, the explosives would be detonated.
1: That is so much work to kill a man.
0: You could just shoot him. You could just walk up to him and shoot him.
1: especially for someone who's already successfully performed a hit on somebody yes. that's an insane amount of work
0: but th- that's how th- this is how you know he was so worked up about it that he was like I got to think of a creative way to kill my brother <laughs> yes just the, uh, okay these are scraped uh, these were scrapped when they realized Verlin was too mobile and instead needed to be drawn out that's why they scrapped him. They didn't scrap him because they were like, "Oh, these are stupid as fuck." And they were like, "Oh, actually, he moves around too much, so we don't." Can't you really.
1: think that uh, that's too much work? No, but I do think he's too mobile to be caught he's, by the manure explosive. Because
0: otherwise, we'd have to have the manure v- truck drive around all the time, and that's just silly.
1: Yeah, it's dumb.
0: Yeah. After much pondering, Ervil came to the conclusion that a funeral for someone close to Verlin would have to draw him out. And thus, in mid-April of 1975, God gave Ervil a target: Rhea Coons. mother. I'm sorry. Mother. His
1: plan is to murder someone in order to murder someone.
0: It's kind of, it's kind of badass. It's like a, that's like a movie scene right there. You know, like Verlin's. At, at the the funeral, and he's like all sad. And then a car pulls up, and a bunch of guys get out in suits, and he's like, "Who's that?" And they walk up, and they're like. We want to offer our condolences, and they just...
1: Well, how are they going to murder...
0: They were just going to shoot him at the funeral, I guess. Oh, this lady? We'll get into it right now. Yes.
1: Okay, sure. Yeah. But, if the, but let me be clear. <laughs> if they're going to murder her, whatever they plan to murder her is could just be used to murder yeah. him. Yeah,
0: yeah. On April 19th, 1975, Rhea received a call from a young woman calling herself Bonnie Roberts. Who told her she was interested in the firstborn church but was hesitant to visit Rhea's house or be seen in public with a fundamentalist and so they agreed to meet by the stables of a uh, riding club two miles south of Salt Lake City. As Rhea drove to the stables a sense of dread overtook her and she turned back. Waiting for her at the stables was not Bonnie Roberts but instead Lloyd Sullivan with a twenty-two caliber revolver. With his son Don and Ervil's oldest Arturo, as lookouts. When Rhea never arrived, Lloyd worried it was a trap and the trio returned to their safe house. Upon his return, Dan Jordan railed him for abandoning the mission and being a coward. Arturo said the old man was chicken shit and possibly a traitor to the kingdom of God. Ervil was simply embarrassed. Earlier that night, around the time Rhea was to be killed, he was sitting with his disciples in the safe house when he announced,
1: I heard a shout. She's dead.
0: After this new failure, Ervil needed a morale boost, and he found it in Robert Simon's previous challenge. Ervil assembled his lieutenants and told him of their new mission: atone the false prophet Bob Simons. Telling them,
1: "We're gonna blow him up like a balloon."
0: And then they're all like, "Yeehaw, hee haw!" <laughs> and then Ervil's like, "No, goddamn it, we need the ammo!" <laughs> oh. Oh, shit. Sorry. Originally, Irville told his men that the Lord's plan was for Simons to be killed at his ranch by Lloyd Sullivan. But Lloyd flatly refused to be the trigger man, and the rest of the men agreed that killing him at his ranch with his two wives and son-in-law was too risky.
1: The Lord's plan is this. No. The Lord's <laughs>
0: plan is something different. All right. Yeah, I like that he's like, Lloyd, you'll be the one to kill him. Lloyd's like, what the fuck? No, I'm not killing him. No, I'm not well, doing
1: that. Well, God said you would.
0: But I don't want to.
1: Well, God said something different then.
0: But I'm not going to.
1: No, he's, I I understand. Oh, son. okay. God said something different then. He's cool. doing a different <laughs> thing then. New plan. I don't. God said, never mind. <laughs> oh, so. hold on. Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I'll t- no, that's actually good news because, yeah, he just said that. Oh, I'll tell him. Good news! God just called me on the phone. He said that uh, you don't have to murder him anymore.
0: You have a phone. He has a phone number.
1: Huh? Oh, I'm sorry. I'm getting a phone. Yeah. He says, "Stop asking questions." Oh.
0: Okay. So the plan. Awesome.
1: So you don't have to kill him.
0: <laughs> so the plan was amended, right? Lloyd would uh-huh. take Bob out to Tavaputs Plateau outside of Price, Utah, which is crazy because now. This whole, like, this whole section is just talking about places that I know. Price uh-huh. is a town that I drove by a thousand times. It's nothing. It's garbage. Uh-huh. Um, it's about 150 miles southeast of Salt Lake City uh, uh-huh. where Eddie Marston and Mark Chinoweth would be waiting, having already dug Bob's grave, to put him in it. On April 23rd, 1975, Chinoweth and Marston left Salt Lake City and headed to Price. They bought supplies along the way and dug the grave afterwards. Uh, and dug the grave afterwards, they went into town to play pool as a reward. I love that these guy, these guys just, just fucking goofballs. like
1: we hey, we deserve we this. earned this yeah, we did
0: and around six p m Lloyd arrived at headless hex ranch. It's a cool ranch name. Yeah, that's he good. had previously spun a tale for the Indian prophet of how he had left Ervil's church and become convinced Simons was the one true, mighty, and strong. After a conversation, the one mighty and strong, sorry. No, I said that right. (laughs) Yeah, the one true, the true one mighty and strong. After a conversation he had with five Indian chiefs, he told Simons that the chiefs had told him they had been looking for years for the white prophet that would lead them to salvation. Sure. Yeah. Lloyd told them of Simons, and the chiefs excitedly asked him to set up a meeting so they could listen to his testimony, and if it was true, they would rally under him. Lloyd returned to Headless Hex on April 23rd with news that the meeting had been arranged. Bob asked Lloyd what he should pack, and Lloyd, anxious to get a move on, told him all their needs would would be taken care of by the Chiefs. Bob, in a a final friendly gesture, ran back inside the house for some oranges to share with Lloyd on the trip, and said goodbye to his wives, and the duo hit the road. That's so sad. Just the image of this old man being like, Hang on, let me get us some oranges. And, and Lloyd's just like, God damn it, I can't believe we have to kill this guy. Yeah,
1: get us some oranges, some friendship oranges. He's
0: Lloyd's just crying, and Bob's like, hey, man. It's not that serious. Oranges.
1: Yeah. It's
0: just oranges. It's fine. No, you don't get it.
1: You don't understand. Lloyd. You're the best friend <laughs> I've ever had.
0: Yeah, I like to think that hey. Lloyd and Bob had, like, a strong friendship or something. Yeah. Lloyd even made Bob pay for gas because Ervil had decided that Bob would cover all the expenses in his own murder. The men reached the marker. That's... It's fucked up, that's man.
1: That's fucked up. I, It's not that big of a deal in the... Like, the grand think scheme about of things, it, but... It's fucked up. Yeah.
0: God. The men reached the marker and stopped. Since there was no sign of the chiefs, both men exited the vehicle with the engine running and the headlights on. I guess, um... Bob, even as they were pulling up, said like, oh, if you wanted to kill me, this would be the perfect spot to do it. And Lloyd was like,
1: ha <clears> ha. <throat> <laughs> yeah, Bob. <laughs> yeah, it
0: would, Bob. <laughs> uh, Lloyd excused himself to pee behind a bush. And as Bob peered out into the dark, Chinowith and Marston approached from behind. Marston raised his 12 gauge to six inches of Bob's head and pulled the trigger. But nothing happened he had left the safety on. After taking it off, he raised the shotgun once more and pulled the trigger. This time, the left side of Bob's head exploded and he went sprawling on the dirt. It's a pretty close shot, man. They definitely got brain on them.
1: Uh, probably not.
0: No, probably not, huh?
1: If it's a shotgun, no. No, yeah. Because it just... yeah. I that I understand that our audio listeners have no idea I, what I just did there you and did I just like made a farting like a hand noise. Exploding but it show. just it's very directional, which I guess I can as a someone who shot a lot of shotguns. I'm unfortunately, I can say pretty confidently it doesn't go backwards mm. unless it would have ricocheted off the ground. How many people have you sh- None. But it's also the same way, I mean, if you think about, like, so Kurt Cobain used a 20 gauge to shoot himself in the head, uh-huh. and it didn't, he put the gun in his mouth, uh, allegedly. Allegedly. And, yeah, and uh, it didn't come out of the other side of his head. Really? Yeah, it, so a 20 gauge was not powerful enough because to shotguns cause shotguns are
0: like, uh, it's like a splat, well, right? It's like pellets? it
1: depends if you're shooting, like, birdshot versus a slug. There's a lot of... Things, but wow,
0: I just know they yeah go boom Cur- they
1: cobain's was a bird shot, which means yes it it spread out and it wasn't powerful enough to cause an exit wound, whether this was a slug or not, either way it wouldn't have it wouldn't have splattered back on them
0: cool, the three men yeah <laughs> welcome no that. that that's actually pretty cool I'm glad that you know that.
1: Well, I have my uses.
0: The three men then dug a shallow grave, removed Bob's coat, watch, and wallet, placed him face up, and poured the ersatz quicklime on him. They had they, they, they poured this uh, quicklime on him because I guess Ervil had heard that it helps dissolve bodies, so they that's why.
1: I, that I don't know enough about. Sounds right.
0: Yeah. They smoothed over the gravesite and covered the blood splatter with fresh dirt. They left and stopped at a diner for coffee on their way home. At the Mountain Green home, after sharing the news, Bob's wallet was passed around where they discovered photos of an unknown nude woman, most likely Linda. The men laughed and joked as they passed the dead man's pictures around. So cool, and they're like, hey, this is that idiot whose wife, this is the wife of that guy we just sh- murdered. Yeah. Nice tits, though, they said. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and Lloyd is just weeping as he's looking at him. And they're like... <laughs> Lloyd, you never seen tits before? The hell's your problem? And he's like
1: <laughs> He just seems so nice.
0: Dean Vest had history with the firstborn church prior to joining Irville's group. His father, Leonard, had actually joined in the fifties and moved the family from Oregon to Colonial Le Baron. But after two after two church members were murdered in nineteen sixty six, Leonard began to have doubts. He didn't believe the official explanation from the church that the men had been killed by Gentiles and instead believed the killings were orchestrated by Ervil. When Leonard developed a feud with Ervil, he decided it was best for his family if they left, and so they did, moving to Alaska and cutting ties with the church. Dean didn't seem to pay attention to his dad and joined the church in 1969, when the rift between Joel and Ervil began to get bad. Dean joined Ervil's side. A Vietnam vet himself, he was swayed by Ervil's militaristic dogma. By 1974, Dean had the trust of Ervil and was named a member of the quorum and military commander of the church. But by 1975, things had gotten complicated for Dean. His wife of four years, Cheryl, did not care for Ervil or the Lamb of God and gave Dean an ultimatum. His family or Ervil. Dean began to edge towards his family and began to work on a salvage barge he had previously purchased. Once it was seaworthy, he made plans to sail up the Pacific coast and reunite with Cheryl and their two children. When Ervil heard of this, he was upset. He had told Dean for some time that he should sell the barge, valued at around $10,000, and tithe half of the earnings to the church. Dean had refused this. Ervil was not about to lose one of his top men and the possibility of $5,000, so shortly after Bob Simons was killed, Ervil had another revelation. Dean Vest must also be blood-atoned. As Don Sullivan remembers, he, he told me that Dean Vest had been getting out of out of hand, that he was about to run to the police and reveal a few things. The Lord had given him a revelation that The only thing that could save him would be his own death, if he would be blood-atoned. But Sullivan believed that a primary reason Ervil wanted Dean gone was because he had been a competitor for Rena Chinoweth, and Rena had been in love with Dean. At one point, the couple had asked the prophet for permission to wed, but Ervil had told Dean that Rena was not the woman for him, and instead gave him Lynn Rodenkirk. Who he eventually took from Dean for her large inheritance. Oh, Jesus Christ! <laughs>
1: <laughs> I mean, he's just uh. he, We talked a little bit about him having the. The the intuitive cult leader thing, but one thing he that oh, I think the thing that gets most cult leaders is like you gotta make people happy in order yeah, to gotta, keep a long lasting yeah. cult, and he's you gotta not give doing them that something. Great. Yes.
0: Sullivan believed that Ervil, uh, blamed Dean for Rena's lack of affection toward him, believing she was still in love with Dean. Ervil pulled Don aside and told him of the Lord's plan for Dean. The Lord had called for Dean's atonement to be carried out by a woman, and Ervil had just the woman in mind, Vonda White, his tenth wife.
1: You're the Pepsi generation, come and have a Pepsi day.
0: Vonda was a friend of Dean's, whom he trusted and often visited. But there, was, but there were some logistical problems with Irvil's plan. For starters, Vonda was 5'3 and 6 months pregnant. This time, <laughs> she wouldn't be...
1: <laughs> it's not funny, it's just dumb.
0: It's, yeah. This time, she wouldn't be taking on an unsuspecting woman, but a large man, who already suspected he was in danger, and she also couldn't handle a gun strong enough to kill Dean instantly. So Ervil asked Don, his new military commander, for advice, and the duo decided Vonda would carry out the killing with a 38 Colt. Don would make a custom quick-release firing pin for the 38, and the Lord had provided a very detailed plan. Vonda would tell Dean that she was returning to Mexico and ask Dean for his pickup truck to help move. Once the truck was all packed, she would invite him to dinner and would cook him a nice hot meal. After Dean had sat down... She would sneak her way behind him and shoot him in the back of the head and blow his brains out, then call the police and blame the crime on the firstborn church. But the Lord's plan didn't shake out this way. You see, on the morning of June 16th, 1975, Dean was notified that his wife and daughter were involved in a car crash. They were both fine, but Dean still decided to book a flight to Seattle that afternoon. He had stored several trunks worth of belongings at Vonda's and went to retrieve them. Thinking if he showed up with personal mementos, Cheryl would be sympathetic to him and believe his claims of wanting to return. When he arrived, Vonda was giving the six children at the, at the home their lunch. While Dean packed, Vonda asked if he wanted help, but Dean thanked her and turned her down. Little did Dean know that Vonda had been briefed by Ervil on the Lord's plan for his atonement, and his hasty packing had only convinced Vonda of Ervil's claims. So, Vonda improvised, and his claims were that uh, Dean was turning on the church and he was going to go to the authorities. The same thing that, was, that happened with uh, Noemi. Fair enough. So, Vonda improvised and moved forward with the atonement. First, she got the children out of the equation by taking them upstairs and into a back room. She instructed them to remain inside regardless of whatever noises they may hear coming from below. She then went into another bedroom of the home and pulled out a plastic bag full of surgical gloves. She took out a pair and put them into her pockets. As she did this, some gloves fell out of the bag and onto the floor. But Vonda didn't seem to notice. She placed the plastic bag on top of the dresser and reached into the drawer where she produced the 38 Colt. She placed it in her other pocket and returned downstairs. She found Dean in the living room. He had finished packing and was ready to leave. So Vonda told him... Her washing machine hadn't been working properly and asked if he would just take a quick little look before heading out, assuming it was a small problem. So, Dean agreed to help. He went through the kitchen to the back porch where the machine sat and messed with it for some time. When he came back into the kitchen, he told Vonda he couldn't find the problem. She thanked him anyway and asked if he wanted to wash up. He then stepped towards the sink to do so. With his back to Vonda, who was now wearing the surgical gloves... Vonda stepped behind Dean and raised the revolver, holding it 12 inches from his back. Looking back on it, she would recall,
1: I knew it was then or never. I didn't want to do it. I was scared out of my wits. I didn't know what else to do. I knew it was a command of God.
0: The first shot shocked Dean and entered on the left side, just above the belt line, and punctured his liver. Dean tried to straighten up and turn towards Vonda, but she had already raised the gun higher and fired again. The second bullet struck him in the middle of the back and tore into his right lung. What happened next shocked Vonda, who had already taken a life at this point. Dean's torn lung instantly filled with blood, and it gushed out from his mouth in a violent stream. As he continued to turn, the blood sprayed across the room in a five-foot arc. Vonda jumped back to avoid the stream but was not quick enough and some droplets got on the bottom of her pant legs and her white shoes. Dean crumpled to the floor and in a last reflex, curled his legs up close to his body. Vonda then stepped over the blood without disrupting the pattern and leaned over the man, aimed the gun at a spot behind his left ear and fired a third and final shot into his brainstem. She then wiped the gun down and dropped it on the floor beside the dead Dean. She removed the gloves and threw them in the trash. She then went upstairs and washed any traces of gunpowder off her hands and shirt. Fonda then went to the children, assured them everything was fine, and called the police. After police arrived, T. Wayne Fowler noticed the uninterrupted pattern and determined the killer had to have gotten blood on them. Vonda and Linda were interviewed, and they told the detective of their bizarre holy war and blamed the firstborn church for the murder. Wayne was pulled away from Vonda and Linda when someone discovered the gloves left out in the bedroom. Before Vonda was taken down to the station, one of the officers noticed dark spots on her shoes as well as a dark, damp spot on her smock. Wayne asked Vonda to change out of her clothes, and they were sent away for analysis. Microscopic splatters of blood were found in the lab, could only determine that it was human blood, but, not spe- but no specifics on who it belonged to. No traces of gunpowder were found on Vonda, but Wayne was convinced he had his woman, so he held her on temporary charges of suspicion of murder and interrogated her for three days. But Vonda was unwavering and stuck to her story that she had been upstairs with the children when the whole ordeal took place, and once again blamed the murder on the Church of the Firstborn. She explained that the blood on her shoes was from Dean, who had suffered a bloody nose, and she had helped them take care of it, and she had gotten some blood on her in the process. Wayne was impressed, recalling,
1: "She was one of the coldest and most resolved people I'd ever talked to. She'd just look you with straight in the eye, with just as blank a stare as could muster, and tell you anything." I asked her who the father of her baby was, and she told me it was Jack somebody. I had a fling with him, bedded him one night, and got pregnant. I already knew that was a lie.
0: At this time, Wayne had begun to learn about the Church of the Lamb of God from contacts in Utah. He learned that Vonda and Linda were plural wives of Vervals. But Vonda didn't seem to care about his knowledge of this fact. Wayne then tried the children, but they were equally brainwashed. They wouldn't even acknowledge knowing who Ervil was, despite the fact that Wayne already knew he was their father. Since they had nothing tangible to on Vonda, she was released on January 19th, but told not to leave town. She left the very next day.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. Vonda, uh, her and the children, left for Denver, where Ervil was waiting for them. He eagerly questioned Vonda and reprimanded her for not moving out of the way of the splatter, but was still pleased regardless. After Dean's murder, Ervil made Vonda an elected lady, which meant a reserved spot in the Celestial Kingdom. After the murders of five individuals, Ervil enjoyed a period of peace with no other executions ordered for the remainder of 1975. He even stopped trying to extort the other Mormon fundamentalist groups. But a big reason for this was because the church was now under official scrutiny from law enforcement. The other Mormon groups...
1: When you say the church, do you mean the official Mormon church? No, the, the
0: Church of the Lamb of God. Okay. The other Mormon groups had begun to talk with law enforcement, and in Utah, several members of the Church of the Lamb of God were pulled in for questioning, and Grantsville police had begun to treat Bob Simon's disappearance as suspicious, and authorities in National City were convinced Vonda had murdered Vest, and they were unlikely to let that go. Ervil, a coward at his core, began to look for new hiding places for the cult. They found it in Denver and pulled up stakes from Utah for the other side of the Rockies. With the exception of Victor Chinoweth, now the number three man in the cult, the cult was still living in poverty, with members crowded into rental homes, usually two to three bedroom houses, occupied by several wives and up to 15 children. They fed themselves often by dumpster diving at, a local, gro- at local grocery stores late at night. Lloyd Sullivan had started an appliance repair business called Michael's Appliances, where members were used as a slave force, with young kids working 12- to 16-hour days in the warehouse with no pay. All the profits from Michael's and Lincoln Auto, which was Victor's business, went to Ervil, who distributed the money as he saw fit. But most of the time it all went to him.
1: Sure. Well, that's what he saw fit?
0: Yeah. Ervil began to grow more and more paranoid during this time convinced that law enforcement agencies in the U.S. were now in cahoots with firstborners, Catholics, and the Knights of Columbus. On March 2, 1976, Ervil and Andres Zarate were driving through Chihuahua when they were spotted by a firstborner who pointed them out to police. The pair were thrown in jail while authorities figured out what to do with them. For the last two years, firstborn leaders had posted, uh, had pushed Mexican law enforcement to bring about justice for Joel's murder and after much deliberation and many, many donations, they managed to have warrants issued for Ervil and Andres to stand trial. The duo was moved to Ensenada, to the same prison Ervil had already spent 14 months in before. During 1976, witnesses took the stand one after another, with Ervil calm throughout the entire ordeal. Maude, Ervil's 84-year-old mother, also took the stand and delivered a poignant testimony, that many firstborners thought would deliver a guilty verdict. But unbeknownst to them, the Lamb of God had been raising money to cover Ervil's attorney fees. And in Latin America and much of South America, uh, prisoners aren't treated the same as in the United States. They're not confined to a cell. They're allowed to roam the prison, and they're allowed to have conjugal visits where they're not supervised by authorities. Uh, They enjoy a lot more um, freedoms in prison because they believe in in these countries that in doing so you're going to have less riots and less displeasure <laughs> displeasure from uh
1: <laughs> from, uncivilized <laughs> savages can you imagine thinking that <laughs> treating a person with decency and respect would no, make that, them this
0: dumbest shit i've ever heard
1: <laughs> idiotic next you'll be telling me next next you'll be telling me that
0: that it, we should pay them for it, the work they do or something.
1: <laughs> shut up, idiot. Dough. Dumb. Ugh. Gross.
0: So anyway, in one of these visits, Thelma Chinoweth passed all the money that the, first, the Church of the Lamb had made onto Ervil. And in November of 1976, the Ensenada district judge handed down a decision on the case. Ervil of Marin and Andres Sarate had been cleared of all charges due to insufficient evidence. Now, November 11th, the prophet of the Church of the Lamb of God was free once more. Ervil now hey. began to prepare for his renaissance. The time of the Lamb of God was afoot. And that
1: oh good. is where
0: we will resume our series with part five.
1: Jose, I gotta be honest with you, buddy. It kinda seems like it's getting worse.
0: Oh, it's only getting worse, Mason. Also, it I kinda like how seems he... like
1: it's getting worse.
0: Do you know how he got out, Mason? Or how do I have to explain out? it to you?
1: <laughs> he just...
0: He paid the judge. They gave yeah, him money okay. and he paid the judge. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: <laughs> well, that would never happen in America. No. In America, rich people go to jail just as often as poor people. Don't look that up.
0: <laughs> Ask uh, Aunt Becky or whatever the fuck her name is from Full House how her jail stay was.
1: No, don't. We're fine. <laughs> it was not good. She served her time. She did what needed to be done.
0: Yes. Well, then, Mason... Is there any other comments you want to say before we wrap the show up? I got a Here's, bad
1: fe- I got a bad feeling about next episode, and this should. episode was bad.
0: Look, I'll just say that um, there's a killing that happens uh, that Ervil orders of his own blood, and um, it's real sad. And I know he's already killed his brother, but it's it's different. It's not a brother. It's it's a child of his, and it's mm. yeah. Cool. I'll tell you this. The one thing that, that stood out to me about today's episode is um, Vonda's involvement. Uh, the, specifically the quote where she says that she didn't know what to do, but she knew it was a command of God, so she had to do it. Uh-huh. Like She killed this man who was her friend. He used to come over all the time and have dinner, sleep over at the house when he didn't want to sleep on his boat, uh, play with her kids. And she just shot him, killed him. Yeah, Just because yeah. Ervil said, look, he's a traitor. He's going to give us up. And God said, you have to kill him. And she just went... I don't want to, but okay. And I think yeah. that shows you the level of control that Ervil had on his, on yeah. his uh, followers.
1: Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah it's a hundred percent. It's he again. I think last episode we talked about right. how
0: we talked about how he could call up members in a different state, ask them to plan a murder, or drive across the country, and they would.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, it just goes to – I mean, the fact that they even considered buying a farm in Wisconsin in order to ship, uh, you know, cow shit through California to Mexico as, like, a – Like, that was something that they could even foreseeably do. I mean, that just shows the amount of control he had over his followers.
0: it's one thing when Colts ask people to move to one spot, right? And set up that, but he has asked them to move time and time again. I mean, he's got a—he's—he's
1: got a—he's got multiple compounds, effectively. Yeah. And a nomadic traveling cult that's loyal to him. That's fucking crazy. It's one thing when a cult is, you know, when a cult leader has power over people he's directly touching. It's a whole other thing when they're able to wield that power just through a phone call.
0: Yeah. Now imagine what he would do with Snapchat. Jesus Christ. Oh God. Streaks. St- streaks, let's kill let's kill some people. <laughs> you know streaks? You know Snapchat streaks? Yeah. That's an old I don't think the kids do that anymore.
1: I don't um, know what kids do anymore, Jose. I'm twenty five years real. old. What?
0: He'd be doing a B reel. Do you know what a be, do you know what a be reel is? No. Mason, let's just wrap the show up.
1: (laughs) All right. What the fuck is a be real?
0: It's an app where it takes a picture of you and then also the other side of your camera so that you're being real and you're showing what's around. I have it. I don't know.
1: The fuck are you talking about? (laughs) What are the children doing these days? I don't understand. I'm confused and I'm scared. Oh, no. Be real. Be shut up f- nerds god
0: if you like the show make sure to leave a five-star review which you can do in app on apple Podcasts and now on spotify we'd really appreciate it if you leave us a review and um as of today i checked we currently have a 4.8 rating on spotify so that's Ooh, sick uh, thank, thank you. you to everyone who has rated it be great if it was five but we'll take 4.8 that's good that's true it's fine
1: uh, you can support the show by going to patreon.com backslash captainslogcast and donate a dollar. Anything helps keeps the lights on. Uh, you can also uh, go over to TeePublic and shop our merch. Click the link in our show notes and grab yourself anything with our handcrafted designs. My girlfriend bought one and uh, she said, quote, best shirt I've ever owned. Nice. You're the hottest man I've ever been with.
0: She's never been with me. What did, what did, what did she mean by that? Oh, <laughs> which one did she get? <laughs> uh, she got the, the ghoul. Uh, that's the best one. I like all I of agree. them. Some, one, of my, uh, agree, one of my coworkers yes. just got the uh, spooky ghosty demon boys, and yeah. I do like that one a lot, but I think mm-hmm. the ghoul one is the best one. Uh, I agree. Yeah. Remember, if you donate slash support us, it all goes towards improving the show, getting better recording equipment, and perhaps allows us to do this full time and not take as many breaks in between episodes. Mason, where can these fine listeners of ours find you?
1: You can find me on Instagram, at Mason Schrader, that's S-H-R-A-D-E-R, where you can see all of my designs and art and and all of the fun stuff that I like to, um, that I would like to do full time, but unfortunately have to work
0: Mm. for. Isn't that an unfortunate thing?
1: Capitalism's a trash system.
0: Fucking hate it. Well, you can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at j.vaya underscore junior and the show on Twitter. Instagram and now TikTok at Captain's Log Pod. We recommend various different materials on there and post show updates. Post some occasionally funny things. So go check it out. There's a video of uh, Mason. He did a, sti- uh, a duet with uh, mm. America's Prime Sweetheart. McLaughlin. Yeah, uh, wishing me a happy Valentine's Day. Go check it the out.
1: original Mordib. All right, not this, not this Gen Z twink. Timothy Chameley, uh, Mordib, Paul Atreides. All right, we're talking about OG Agent Cooper, Kyle McLaughlin,
0: Mordib. Okay, you can also subscribe on YouTube. where you can...
1: F- I will let the fear pass through me, <laughs> and where it is gone, the, 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 there will be nothing in its wake. I don't remember the whole litany. Wow.
0: You can also subscribe on YouTube where you can find me as Jose Vite Jr., Animal Productions, and of course the show's official YouTube channel, Captain's Log. Uh, if you can't get enough of me, you can also listen to my other podcast with friend of the log, Max Benyon. Called Max and Jose have something to say, which is back. We're releasing an episode soon. Yay. We talked about the Fast and the Furious. I I, I, I went crazy in it because that, that franchise makes me crazy.
1: You should have let me on that one. I should You don't have, have to leave this part in, but I, I've got strong opinions about
0: that. Oh, maybe we'll do a part two.
1: Make sure to tell your friends and family uh, about the show if you enjoy it. Uh, if you'd like to share your opinion on this case or have some insight, um, please share uh, with us by writing to captainslogcast at gmail
0: You can also suggest episode topics, guests you'd like to have back, etc. Make sure to subscribe and download an Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Play, and any other podcast directory. We want to thank our friend Carlos Rivera for composing our brilliant show's theme. With that everybody, we have reached the end of our show. We'll see you soon for another episode. Uh, I've been your Captain Jose Valle Jr. joined by
1: Mason the Weak and Slidey Trader. Wow.
0: And this has been Captain's Log. End of Transmission. Whoops.